0: Today in the garage, we have Kat Mercer. Kat is a stellar lawyer practicing with Mercury Defense Law. Her practice is in the Greater Toronto Area. Today, Kat spoke to us about bail hearings and her experience carrying out bail hearings of her own as a new lawyer. Whether you're driving your blue Volvo, playing your Seagull acoustic, or prepping an application for a bail review, let's step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get a tune-up. joining us
1: today. Hi Paul, thanks for having me.
0: So one of the objectives that I want to be able to convey to our audience is what the hell is a bail hearing?
1: (laughs) What is a bail hearing? Yes. Uh, A bail hearing is where you uh, either get detained or you don't get detained.
0: And do you want to tell us a little bit about bail from the moment you get the call that somebody might be arrested? or is dealing with the police, whether they're released uh, from a police station or if they're held for bail. Tell us how that works.
1: Yeah, Uh, so the police have a few different options when they are charging someone with a crime. Um, There are certain types of offenses where you can't actually arrest someone. You can charge them, but you can't arrest them. Uh, Those are things like section 553 offenses, uh, which is absolute jurisdiction offenses. Um, Things like theft under 5,000 except of cattle. Cattle is very important.
0: Very important. Look at my size. I eat a lot of steak.
1: <laughs> or like just your under offenses, small things you can't arrest them for. Uh, and so if you're doing one of those, if the police are doing one of those offenses, they'll do what's called an appearance notice or a Form 9, which just sets out, this is where you have to be uh, for your court date. And uh, if it's one of the fingerprinting offenses, then this is where you need to be for your fingerprinting.
0: How are Form 9s different than the elevated Form 10 or 11-1?
1: So form nines don't come with any conditions. Once you get to a form ten or a form eleven, then you get conditions. A uh, form ten is the other option for a police officer um, if they don't want to go take you to a bail hearing. Um, uh, form ten is an undertaking, which is um, for you know more serious offenses or where they want to arrest you because they think an arrest is necessary either to preserve evidence or to establish identification or something like that. Um, There is uh, a prescribed set of conditions that the peace officer can make. Um, It's like 10 of them, I want to say, which is different than it used to be. Uh, Bill C-75 created this list because peace officers kept imposing a lot of conditions that either didn't make sense or were, like, setting people up to fail, like a condition not to drink with someone who has alcoholism. It's not going to work. They have one condition, which is... um, any other condition to ensure the safety and security of any victim or witness, um, but that's still a lot more narrow than the hugely what they used to have.
0: Right, and I understood that uh, the purpose originally to allow officers in charge of a station to release someone on uh, conditions under eleven one was to reduce, reduce the workload and burden of resources on the judicial system. So they provided this quasi-judicial function to police, which of course was reviewable, but then we ended up in a type of situation where there were applications being brought because the conditions were too onerous.
1: Yep, and I mean, peace officers aren't trained to be justices of the peace or judges. They're not trained about, you know, these are the appropriate conditions that are gonna work with someone for the next three years until they get their trial. Or and whatever we have
0: to remember be. police are not judicial officials.
1: Yep, um, they also have another option. Um, again, from Bill C-75, which is called a Judicial uh, Referral Hearing, um, which happens if there's been a breach of an undertaking or a release order or something like that, and there hasn't been any harm, so there hasn't been any violence, economic loss, or property damage. Uh, And then you go before a Justice of the Peace, and the Justice of the Peace can decide to do a few things. They can do nothing and just release you. They can change the undertaking. uh, They can detain you. Um, but the pur- purpose of these is to reduce the number of bail hearings for people who were just making like, accidental um, breaches, so that um, they can go before this like, smaller hearing, not have any charges come out of it, and just have their bail changed so that it's a functional bail.
0: Right now, we're about one year into C75, and uh, I understand, and I could be wrong, this might be anecdotal that the use of the referral is very limited and and sort of scarce, at least in Ontario right now. Um, It is an important uh, uh, tool to have uh, for the police to use and for counsel, I imagine, to try to uh, convince uh, uh, as an appropriate process. How would you undertake to do that? Because I guess the whole objective, the policy objective, was this was supposed to save resources
1: Um, I think you would have to go about when you get that initial call from the client, you ask to speak to the peace officer and try to convince them that this is the thing to do.
0: I guess if we keep asking for that over and over and continue with uh, pressing this through CPD events, hopefully uh, it will trickle down to the Crowns and to uh, police officers and to those that are responsible for giving policy advice so that we can help create a more efficient uh, criminal justice system.
1: Hopefully, because I haven't seen any.
0: So now it sounds like you're going to get stuck. Uh, you got the call yep. and you're going to have to go to court the next day by phone or electronic uh, vehicle or, or in person. Uh, tell us about the bail hearings and, and what we should know.
1: Um, so bail hearings are one of my favorite things because they're very prescribed. They go in exactly a certain way. Um, At a bail hearing, you're going to either uh, have to show um, yourself, because sometimes there are reverse onuses to get someone out, um, or the Crown is going to have to show why someone should be detained. So assuming the Crown has to show why someone should be detained, they have three ways to do it. They have um, the the grounds. So the primary ground is that they need to be detained, otherwise they won't go to court. That's the argument. Um, So this might be uh, a ground used for someone who isn't normally a resident of Canada, for example. Um, The second ground is for the safety of the public and uh, to stop interference with the justice system. Uh, So this is maybe someone's been a violent offender in the past. The uh, Crown wants to show that they shouldn't be released because they just, you know, keep on doing violent things. Um, The important thing about the secondary ground, the ground I'm talking about, is there needs to be a substantial likelihood that um, a further offense might be committed or the administration of justice might be interfered with. Not just a mere likelihood. It's always going to be safer to detain people because then they can't do anything.
0: You'd have to detain everyone then. Exactly. A- and that's not really the law. And as I understand is, uh, and sometimes people don't really understand the nuance. It's 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 the test is what you've articulated. But when you're in a court, there has to be evidence to s- to deal with that test. And and depending on if the crown has the onus they have to show on the balance of probabilities, and then you get to the test. So it's important to uh, understand that the test is not just limited to the substantial likelihood, but it's also that there has to be evidence that show on a balance of probability that that does or could exist.
1: Mm-hmm. On evidence, actually, um, bail hearings are different from trials, in the evidentiary standard is reduced. Um, so instead of having to necessarily, like, show evidence, call a witness, you can provide some information just from a reputable source is, um, I believe the term for it. Um, JPs are just allowed to receive information, um, at a much more relaxed standard. So the Crown has a bit more leeway, but also we have a bit more leeway to show evidence that wouldn't necessarily be admissible in court. Um, the tertiary ground is, um, like, a specific list Um, the overarching theme is, is detention necessary to maintain the confidence in the administration of justice with regards to a few things. Um, The strength of the Crown's case, so whenever they tell me that they have security camera footage, that's what they're talking about. Um, The gravity of the offense, circumstances of the offense, including whether a firearm was used, and whether there's a potential likelihood for a lengthy sentence um, if they're convicted um, or if there's a minimum of of three years uh, for a firearms offense. And then also just generally anything else you can consider for maintaining confidence in the administration of justice. Um, One important thing that I find um, necessary to remind people of about this one is uh, with regards to the gravity of the offense there is, no bail, there is no offense for which bail is not an option, which you've told me about 20 times. Um, so you need to remind them, even if, it's, even if it's a murder, they can still get out. Just because the offense is a very grave one does not mean on its own that you can't release someone.
0: Okay. So let me ask you specifically about when you act as counsel on a bail hearing. Um, what information do you try to gather in order to prepare for a bail hearing?
1: My useless answer is as much as possible. Uh, But you probably have like maybe 24 hours before the actual bail hearing, so um, in order. I want to talk to the accused, um, first to see if they have any sureties just in case. Uh, And then I wanna know their whole life story. I want to know their background, their family, whether their family is alive, who they are, where they are, their immigration status, which is really important for the primary ground. Um, Do they have a criminal record? If so, what for? Although we're also going to be provided a criminal record by the crown as part of the bail hearing. Um, do they have any children? Where do they work? Are they at school? Do they do any volunteering, any community work? That sort of thing. Um, medical history is really important right now because um, COVID is currently consideration. I don't know how far the future people are listening to this. So, uh, but still medical history can be important even regardless of COVID because some people are just not going to be able to medically handle being in the system. Um, I also need to know how much um, money or assets they have in order to set the quantum of the bail. Um, I don't usually ask about the offense that's alleged, just because I don't want to like lock them into any particular position yet when we don't have any of the disclosure. Uh, And then I, the next thing I do is I go talk to the sureties, I try to get all the same information from them. Um, They're going to have to undergo cross-examination. I should say, uh, you don't need a surety, obviously, but assuming that you need a surety just for the sake of this, um, I'm going to want to ask them all the questions that I think the Crown is going to ask them, which are things like, have you got a criminal record? Have you been a surety before? Do you know what the process is like to be a surety? Um, Why do you think they'll listen to you? Um, Why are you doing this? And then uh, you need to make sure the surety knows um, about their criminal record, about the current charges, and if there are any outstanding charges. They need to know about that. And also, um, any other sureties just in case.
0: And, and how do you deal with a question that might come up in a hearing where you can foresee a crown attorney asking the surety, Oh, have you had a chance to speak to the accused? What have they told you? Um, how do you deal with that?
1: I, um, try to think of whatever questions the crown is going to ask and ask them myself first so I know the answer. Um, And if I know they can't answer honestly in a way that is going to be productive, I might not use them as as a surety. Um, My main advice to sureties is is always to be honest because things that they think make them sound less credible make them sound more credible. Um, Like, the JP can know if you're trying to make yourself sound like you're completely proper. You've never done anything else, uh, never done anything wrong in the the entire uh, history of your life. But if you go ahead and say, like, 20 years ago, I had a bunch of criminal record stuff, but I've cleaned up my act. That's gonna look really good for their credibility. Okay. Um, the Crown's gonna provide you a synopsis, so you read through that. Um, that's gonna go under the tertiary ground in your like, little mental script uh, about the strength of the case. Um, the criminal record, you wanna look at that, and assuming there is one, and uh, be able to distinguish itself, and distinguish it from what's going on today so maybe he has a lot of drinking and driving. Well, this is an assault that's unrelated. It's not going to show a pattern of conduct because it's completely different. Or maybe he had a lot of stuff in the back in the uh, like ten years ago, but nothing now. Um, which goes to the secondary ground. Uh, I'm saying he just because it's more common and it's easier than saying. Well, they.
0: stats. This the data does show that. Yeah. Overwhelmingly, there are more men in the criminal justice system than there are women. For transgender people. Yeah.
1: Which could be an entirely different talk, but I'm only here about bail. Um, And then you want to know about any previous releases they're on. Um, The Crown might do 524, which is where they pull the bail if there's been a breach or an allegation of breach. Um, But they might not. So if they have other bails, you're going to want to make sure that the bails don't conflict. like I've seen it before, where they were legally required to live in two different houses.
0: Can you, can you just step back and explain, because uh, I know we commonly talk about 524 and are curious whether the Crown is going to bring that application. But break it down for the, the, the new lawyer who's about to enter into practice and has to attend at a bail hearing and all of a sudden they hear 524 and they don't really know what it is. So if you don't mind breaking it down.
1: So 524 means that the client was out on some outstanding charges on a bail already or on some kind of release order. And there is the allegation that they've done something new, new crime, um, and therefore breached because one of the conditions of any bail or undertaking or anything is always going to be keep the peace and be of good behavior. So if there are allegations like that, the Crown has the opportunity to do a 524 application, which is where they apply to have whatever previous releases existed pulled. So he could be charged with something completely new and have his old bail pulled if the Crown does this. Technically, they get a hearing for this, um, and you're going to disagree with me on this, I think. Um, But I've never actually seen anyone do the hearing. All the defense counsel I see, they just accept the application because they know it's going to be granted and then move on to the bail stage.
0: You know, there is a lawyer that you might know who tends to (laughs) always object to 524 and make them prove it and have a separate hearing. Um, But... I guess every case is, uh, is unique, and, and y- as counsel, you'll make sure that uh, you'll attend to what's most efficient for your client and in their best interest, whether you should be uh, attending to try to get that evidence out on a 524 application or not. It's in the appropriate circumstance that there is and can be a benefit.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is true, and also there's probably a pretty good benefit to being as fearless as um, you are with objecting to literally everything.
0: Thanks for that uh, big bonus on uh, my credibility there in the court.
1: You're welcome. Uh, Only things that are like meritorious, or at least probably meritorious.
0: Never shy away from an issue. It's true. Or convenience. And uh, I know you've uh, participated in a long trial with me, and that's uh, something that uh, we always have to understand what the appropriate objective is. Uh, but if there's ever something that needs to be challenged or uh, if something's sliding through that shouldn't slide it through, you have to not only ensure that you're having a, f- a fair trial for your client, but you are also you also have to ensure, at least in my mind, that uh, the record properly uh, displays what is occurring in the court and uh, that you speak up should there ever have to be a review of that uh, hearing.
1: Yeah, because if you do end up getting your client detained, you want to have built a really good record for your bail review
0: and that's a good segue into allowing you to continue (laughs)
1: um one last thing that i want to get information about uh, because we were talking about that a few years ago um uh you want to like have a very specific and detailed plan that you have um and you need to make sure that your client and any sureties know it Uh, they need to be able to repeat it back to the um, JP if they're asked to, or to the Crown, or to anyone.
0: So how do you develop a plan, and how do you um, ensure that the accused understands, or participates in the creation of the plan, and and as well, if there are sureties, how they factor into that plan, and how their thought process is important? Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, You want to make a plan that's feasible, um, and you want to make a plan that allows for some degree of 24-hour supervision. Uh, because the surety is basically the, um, I don't super like this term, but the jailer in the community. Um, so you want to know that somebody is going to know where the accused is all the time and that they're going to have a way to be able to find that out. Um, they don't have to be with them the whole time, but for example, if the, the, um, client is going to work, you want them to have a cell phone that the surety can call to make sure they're there. Uh, so you want to develop a plan with the input of the client and the surety is to make sure that it's going to be something that works with their lives. Um, like if they are doing uh, something where they can only be out, out of the house with the surety, you need to make sure the surety can do that. Um, they don't have other obligations. Or make sure they have a car if you're in a jurisdiction without vehicles um, where they need to be driven to court and so on. Um, as for making sure they understand it, have them help make it and repeat it back to you. In their own words.
0: And help them, I guess, uh, understand that uh, when they're given evidence in court, they just have to be themselves. And yeah. the importance of, I imagine, their plain language uh, conveys real credibility.
1: Yeah. In submissions, um, maybe it's okay for lawyers to use all of the fancy lawyer jargon that no one understands. But I think during examination, it's incredibly important just to use plain language. Otherwise, the witnesses are just going to be lost. And of course, they're... We had to go through a whole bunch of years of school to understand what we're saying. Um, The surety, the rules I always give for anyone testifying um, is number one is be honest. Um, Number two is listen to the whole question and don't interrupt. Uh, And then number three is answer only the question that is asked. And if they do that, it's pretty hard to not seem credible if you follow those rules.
0: Okay, thank you for that. (laughs) So where do you want to take us now with bails?
1: Uh, well, my list says ethics.
0: Okay. That's an important topic. (laughs)
1: Um, yeah. Um, uh, there are a few ethical concerns you need to look out for. Uh, the main one is, uh, about sureties. We are not the lawyer for the surety and we aren't giving the surety any legal advice. Um, if you take out all of the like emotion and loyalty and relationships out of it, it's a bad idea to be a surety. You are putting yourself at risk and giving yourself a whole lot of obligations for no benefit and you can't have a benefit because it's legal to be a surety for money. Um, so we are asking these people to do something that's not in their interest. The reason we're asking them is because it's at the client's interest and it needs to be made clear to the sureties that we are doing everything in the client's interest and not theirs. A lot of people think, um, or at least a lot of people tell me they assumed I was also their lawyer when they were the surety.
0: Well, I I, I know that you, because uh, I've worked with you on some cases, you make it quite clear that you are not the surety's lawyer. And I know that also part of the tendency in Ontario courts is to prepare an affidavit of a surety. And right in that affidavit, almost right right the last second, second last or the last paragraph, it indicates that they are entitled to independent legal advice. And when you review it with them, you re-explain what that means. Um, and so you have to, from an ethical point of view, you have to ensure that they know that. But part of our podcast or video series will be available for the public. And so if you don't mind, I just want to make s- something known, should assure you to be watching this, is that sometimes law does not make sense. It's not always logic. And although there may be... Um, from you know, a strict logical point, there's there's you're giving up a lot and really you're not getting anything in back in return. Um, the bridge that is looked for, I believe, by the jurist, by the justice of the peace or judge doing the hearing is I want to know why you're doing this. And, and it's not the rational reason. it's the irrational. it's the love, it's the family connection. It's the importance of guidance for that individual uh, that uh, really creates, Uh, what becomes a solid foundation as a surety. So uh, uh, sureties are entitled to their own legal advice and duty counsel sometimes can provide that for them right there in the courthouse and they can seek out their own private counsel Um, or they can educate themselves and waive uh, that right to uh, have uh, some uh, independent legal input. What are your thoughts on that? Um,
1: That's actually one of the questions that I always ask sureties is why are you doing this? because often their answers are really compelling. Um, And also because, you know, it's important to know. Um, Yeah, I don't actually see sureties getting independent advice a whole lot. Um, They tend to be fairly committed, which I think is because if you want to be a surety, it's not super beneficial to you, so you probably have a strong um, emotional reason that nobody's really going to convince you out of. That's my guess. I don't know. Um, Some other uh, ethical... Things to look out for is um, the criminal record. In like nine out of ten cases, the the, um, Crown is going to give you the criminal record, and then you'll go over to the client and say, "Yep, those are my records." But occasionally, um, the record that you know exists won't show up. We are not technically under any obligations to um, provide that information, but we have a duty of candor to the court where we can't. rely on something we know is not true or put forth a suggestion that we know is not true. Uh, so you could do some sort of weird skirting around, never imply it. My, my tactic, I would say, is just to always disclose. I think that's going to make you look more credible to the court. Um, and it's definitely not going to bite you like um, not being completely honest with court could.
0: This is uh, something that can come up at different uh, points uh, during the criminal process. Uh, for example, it can also occur on sentencing. And uh, we have that duty of candor, but we also have a number of other duties. And the way I was taught uh, three decades ago uh, was that uh, if you were asked, uh, what is your client's record, Mr. Cooper? And I would respond, or I was trained to respond, I think you need to ask the Crown that. Um, I would never lie to a court, and I would ensure that, uh, you know, I'm not trying to skirt around it. Um, You get in a very uncomfortable situation when you think that you assume that everybody knew something about your coin and turns out that halfway through the record of whatever's transpiring or whatever's transpiring on the record, you realize, oh, they don't know and you feel uncomfortable. Whenever you have any situation like that um, and you need advice, uh, just take a break. Call somebody. Uh, We've gone out. Cat's number, or call other lawyers, uh, one of the, one, I, I, I guess it's just our bar, criminal bar, everybody's accessible. And I think if you say, you know, I got a client, I need a few minutes of advice, people will help walk you through it.
1: I've never met a defense lawyer who wasn't willing to like have coffee with me and explain a bunch of things to me on, at the drop of a hat. Well, it's a really nice community. Um. One last uh, ethical concern I wanted to talk about is one that I haven't got a great way of navigating, honestly, um, is potential sureties that are complainants. Uh, in domestic situations, frequently, uh, the sure- the um, complainant will come to me and say, I want to be the surety for my husband, but you can't. Um, slightly less awkward, uh, or, well, I mean, slightly less clear-cut, because just, you can't be. Um, is when a complainant or um, family member that shouldn't necessarily really be on side wants to pay you to do the bail hearing or someone there on a non-communication order wants to be a surety or um, pay you to do the hearing. Obviously, they can't be the surety, um, but uh, paying you to do the hearing for someone that can't communicate with them also not going to be a great idea.
0: It's not a great idea. I I don't think it's impossible, but there's a... A I don't few, think there's a rule against it or th- anything. No, but if you're going to take money, you got to ensure that it's processed, everybody gets independent legal advice, uh, because uh, your client's instructions can only be your instructions, and notwithstanding who's paying you, they're not going to uh, call the tune, they're not going to be able to give any influence, and that has to be known right up uh, uh, front in advance. And, and, and I'm more speaking of the situations, not of... Uh, a complaint paying for you because I would be fearful of that and I'd stay away from that. Yeah, but more probably. of my clients may have an employer or a cousin or a family member who may also know the complainant, uh, uh, who and they want to pay for uh, the legal services. You know, it's it's not uncommon in my practice where, uh, if the complainant also is employed by the employer, uh, and my client uh, uh, requires funds, uh, they will they will finance that defense. And uh, you just have to follow necessary steps to make sure that everybody understands uh, their boundaries and to ensure that solicitor-client privilege and all instructions remain confidential. Yeah.
1: Um, It is a weird thing to say to them, though. You're the one who's paying me. I'm not going to tell you anything. (laughs) But that's what you got to do. It's kind of like sureties where you have to remind them. Uh, You may be the person that I'm arranging all of this with, but I owe a duty only to the client and not to you. Thank you for this money.
0: Can you tell us about your first bail hearing and what advice would you have for any new call or young lawyer who's about to embark on their first bail hearing?
1: Yep, Um, my first uh, bail hearing was a reverse onus um, breach case um, where a young man had a clause in his previous bail where he wasn't allowed to use a cell phone, except in certain circumstances. Um, He used a cell phone in what he thought was an appropriate circumstance, but the police picked him up and uh, when I looked at his bail, Uh, because i had i had not done the previous hearing i found that it was fairly confusing um it would have been a really great candidate for the judicial referral hearing we were talking about um so i sat in court and i watched uh other bails for a little bit because mine kept getting pushed which was really helpful um and that's just helpful in general is to go watch things before doing them yourself
0: it wasn't helpful that he got detained to have extra time because they had lacked of resources that was
1: not helpful (laughs) it was helpful for me not for him um Uh, but I, uh, I put him on the stand, um, which isn't always the best idea, but, um, he had a really good explanation. He seemed really credible to me. So I put him on the stand. He explained what was happening. Um, and he actually asked for the clause where he was allowed to use a cell phone to be taken off completely because he didn't want to mess up again. Um, and so he was released on the exact same bail, except he wasn't allowed to use a cell phone at all.
0: Okay. What advice would you have for young lawyers?
1: Um, I have a lot of advice for young lawyers.
0: Let's go through it.
1: Um, so one of the most important decisions you're going to make for a bail is, assuming you want a surety, is the surety. So you want to look out for things like, um, have they been honest with you? Um, are they just a reliable person? Do they, like, have a stable job or, like, have some kind of indicia that they're a stable, um, reliable person? Uh, you want the relationship between them and the accused to be as close as possible um because sometimes you can have almost near strangers that volunteer but it does not go very well um and you want someone who is not willing to put up with anything uh so my favorite charities are the moms who say i love my son i want him out uh but he pulls anything else i am calling the cops because i can't afford to lose that money and i'm sick of him um one thing we talked about earlier is fishing expeditions um a different kind of fishing expedition is when the crown tries to ask a surety questions about things that the accused might have said to them about the alleged offense. Um, So the Crown will say something like, how are you gonna uh, supervise him? He did all these things before. Did he tell you about any of them? Um, So the Crown is saying they're using this to show that the surety isn't a good surety. But what they're actually doing, in my opinion, is trying to get information about the offense that they can use for later. Um, So what you wanna bring with you, and we should always bring with you, is Regina and KK. Uh, it's from 2019, ONSC 1578, where it just says, yes, that is relevant information, but it's just too prejudicial. Um, unfortunately, there are cases now that disagree with that, but it hasn't been ruled on by anyone uh, superior to the ONSC, so it's um, still a viable case to bring with you, and I always do.
0: Any other cases you bring with you?
1: I always bring Morales and Pearson, which are a little bit older cases, but they go over in what I find a very like clear and concise way. Um that there is no offense for which a bail is not an option, which I always love to to, uh, repeat. And um, you're entitled to a reasonable bail.
0: I I know that it almost goes without saying because the Supreme Court of Canada has really addressed uh, bail quite substantially in the last uh, three to four years, but uh, I'm sure you also bring antic with you. Yes. And uh, are there any other cases or anything else that you have to remind yourself, the court, the Crown? your client and explaining what bail is and and, and, and really what the policy is in the way that the courts are now looking at bail.
1: Um, so I actually, I refer to Bill C-75 when I'm doing hearings because that's a really clear indication from the um, government of how they want bails to be seen and how they want releases to be seen. Um, because they made these judicial referral hearings because administrative detentions kept happening and wasting courts time. So I like to refer to that because it's clear guidance from the uh, government that we don't want to detain people. Stop detaining people, please.
0: Yes. Okay. Any other advice you have for young lawyers?
1: Um, Yeah. Um, I have a few things that are sort of point form. Um, Please share them with us. uh, I always prepare uh, my client to testify, even if I don't plan to call them, just in case. Um, And also it'll just give you an idea of how they will be Um, testifying, which is useful. Uh, If you think you should object, do it. Don't second guess yourself, um, because you want to preserve the record for a bail review. Um, If you're a nervous person like I am, you want to write yourself a checklist and a script like I've written here. Uh, So my checklist is I go through the plan with everyone, I figure out what the Crown is seeking detention on, like what grounds they're seeking detention on. I ask for a publication ban under 517, which is uh, automatically granted. Just because I don't think it's in anyone's, my, in my client's interest to have any of that information published, um, I always ask the uh, justice if they would like me to restrict my sent- submissions to the grounds on which the crown is seeking detention. Even in a reverse onus situation, they sometimes don't want to hear all of the grounds because the crown's only seeking on one or two or three, uh, one or two of the three. Uh, so I have a whole script where I go through the crown. The synopsis, um, any questions that I want to ask about the synopsis, because you can do that. Um, So if it's uh, security camera footage, you can ask, is that security footage uh, black and white? Is it fuzzy? Uh, Just to sort of put the idea in the ear of the gist of the piece that what they think sounds really um, convincing might not actually be that great evidence. Um, The first thing I do before calling my witnesses is that I go over what the plan is. Um, Then I have my my questions for the surety, possibly questions for my client, submissions. um, uh, Yeah, when the crown is going through their submissions, you wanna actually pay close attention instead of preparing what you're doing, uh, just in case they say something that you wanna build off of. And on the top of every page of my script, I write, slow down, because I talk too fast. (laughs)
0: You know, it's five o'clock in the afternoon. You're about to pack up for the day and all of a sudden you get a call from a police officer indicating that you have a client in custody and you embark on getting information and find out that your client's going to be held overnight and there will be a bail hearing the next day. Um, you had planned on, on, on working on another file. Now you got to switch gears and work, uh, in order to prepare appropriately for the bail hearing the next morning. After giving your client uh, 10B rights and getting as much information as you can, you embark on the process uh, and start calling potential sureties and family members. But part of that process is also to ask for your retainer. Um, the uh, difficult part I know for a lot of lawyers is to ask for money. Um, our services uh, are important for the criminal justice systems, but they're also Um, part of business. And we're not talking about gouging people. We're talking about understanding your own value. How do you ask for a retainer?
1: So I know I always feel really bad about doing this, but it's really important. Um, We have at least, I think, at least six years of of university education. Um, I went to school for eight years. I don't know if anybody watching went to U of T, but we all know how expensive that is. Those are costs that we have to recoup as businesses, and that's all education that we have that people need. It's important to charge what you're actually worth, even if it makes you feel kind of bad, um, because otherwise you're not going to be able to do this work for very long. It won't be sustainable. Um, so I, if it's a client who I know does not have the means to pay me, I'm definitely gonna give them a lot more leeway, maybe like a payment plan. Um, if it's a client who can pay, I will require everything up front. Um, a lot of people will say I can get you the money when I'm out, um, but they can find you the money very quickly when you tell them you won't do the hearing until you've gotten paid.
0: It's one of the boundaries we have to create as lawyers. Um, it's fair for us to be compensated uh, reasonably for our services. Um, and what I found in my years uh, as a lawyer is I discover who has the ability to pay. we we've. we've Uh, gone through uh, uh, an information gathering process and uh, you know if somebody truly has the ability to pay or not and if they don't um, I know that I will uh, uh, be glad to accept legal aid Uh, and there are many times where I've done bail hearings for free uh, because the person may fall through the cracks Uh, but if somebody does have the means I have no fear to ask for an appropriate amount and demand it up front uh, because they are getting a service, and it's an important service. And I want to be able to convey to young lawyers out there and and to all lawyers that there is value in your service. And if somebody has the ability to pay and you're being reasonable and you explain to them what the process is, uh, they'll understand why it is fair, and they will pay you immediately. There are other people that might have the ability to pay but but, but do not have the desire to pay avoid those clients. Avoid them at all costs because if they're not going to pay now, they're not going to pay later, and you're just going to be uh, uh, very disappointed and you're going to have a strained relationship. Um, anything you want to add to that?
1: Yeah, if you have a client who is not going to pay you, you're just going to waste a lot of time. Um,
0: it's tough enough starting out in your own practice. Yes. Imagine all those extra hours you put in not properly being compensated or not compensated at all, staying up all night, getting sick over over the stress, uh, and, and then putting yourself out of business when, for all those years, and uh, uh, you've studied so that you can commit and help people. Most people at the criminal bar are not here for dollars and cents. They're here to make a reasonable living and to help assist those in need and help move uh, criminal justice forward, uh, progressively forward, I think.
1: And one of the things about bales, especially, you said, it's usually after hours, it's usually long, sudden derails any plans you had and you have to work maybe late at night or over the weekend. Um, if we were any other job, we would be getting crazy overtime for that. <laughs> um, so it's important to value your time. Yeah. You're allowed to have a life or be compensated for not.
0: And the reason why I want to include this in our, to- in our talk is f- two purposes. One is for the public and for members of the profession to Put the lens on to understand uh, that what you're asking for is only reasonable. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you're straightforward and, and transparent with your clients or their family, they get it mm-hmm. and they will pay. They understand the value in the service. Mm-hmm. Kat, I want to thank you for joining us today and thank you for sharing your knowledge. And if uh, anyone uh, 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 would like to reach out to Kat for some uh Advice on uh, opening up your own practice, or um, if uh, you need someone, uh, or if you need uh, assistance, you need a lawyer for a bail hearing, Kat Mercer's the person. Give her a shout. Thank you, Kat.
1: Thanks so much for having me,
0: Thank you for listening to today's podcast. A shout out to our fantastic producers, Xenia Sethna. Jason Cooper. For more free legal education and to check out what we've been doing for the past 10 years, go to thelawgarage.com. That is thelawgarage.com.